You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, a very special bonus episode covering the boys' favorite films of 2022, featuring Chicago Beef, Fine Young Cannibals, Porn, Crooked Cops, Conspiracy Theories, Cancel Culture, Cocaine, Fighter Jets, Stomach Zippers, Jean Jackets, Space Whales, and... Mega Jake Gyllenhaal. Martin. Yes, chef. another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, 2022, pretty good year for movies. One of the best in recent memory. I mean, honestly. And joining us from Pittsburgh is the great, beautiful Brandon Strusnig, just slinging takes from... <laughs> wait, how, how cold is it there? I was going to say from the Arctic tundra of Pittsburgh, but I wasn't sure entirely how cold it was. Uh, it's, I think it's like in the fifties today. It's, it's pretty, pretty good today. Uh, that's like my favorite kind of weather, but, uh, we we straight up balmy. Yeah. We just got out of like a pretty bad cold snap where it was like negative five. And then with the wind chill, it felt like negative 30. So like, it's been feeling good here lately. (laughs) Yeah. I just got back from Indiana branded and that was like about the same negative 20 with oh, chill. so yeah yeah, yeah. I, I i heard the midwest got it especially bad so I, I think we made out pretty okay compared to that no i mean jeremy renner didn't make it out okay but oh, you God, know, the yeah. rest of us are fine <laughs> i'm still wondering what's going on with that i don't want to speculate but i mean i don't know i, I wonder if i there's... think the snow cat became sentient and just tried to take <laughs> him out like it's oh. some real like fucking skynet shit going on god <laughs> well I mean, I, I guess it's what we deserve. I'm going to take you to Wind River, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're here to not celebrate the possible death of Jeremy Renner, but to actually <laughs> celebrate <laughs> the best movies of 2022. Um, and just to kind of tell you guys at the top, uh, these top fives, we kind of set some parameters is that these aren't necessarily like our personal top fives, but we all picked five movies and then shared the list with each other so that we didn't have any overlap so that we could cover as many uh, really solid pictures that we could uh, because like Martin said, like 2022 just kind of kicked ass and it, it was hard to whittle this down to 15 movies. I remember last year we were doing our best of 2021. It was difficult. The other reason was because like I didn't get my vaccination till like April of 2021. So almost half the year I didn't go to the theater. And so I felt like we I had to find like 10 movies, like d- basically drag through stuff I didn't even like. And this year I was like, wait, I have to choose 
Like it was harder than usual. Um, and and it was, was kind a lot, of yeah. good, like right off the bat from too. the beginning. Yeah. Brandon, why don't you start us off with your number five pick? It's funny. Usually my, my top tens are like the last few years have been really arty and, and everything, <laughs> but my top, my top three are so action blockbuster focused that this, this number five is kind of funny to be among them, but it's uh, Claire Denis stars at noon. Um, it's a movie that I think when it played, I, I want to say it opened a can everyone there hated it. And I remember thinking like, <laughs> Oh wow. Like everyone hates this. I'm surprised. Like she, she usually like that. She, she doesn't usually hit well with like more mainstream audiences, but like the can audiences seem like the ones that would like eat her stuff up, but they all seem to love her other movie, both sides of the blade, which I haven't seen yet. But uh, I don't know. Stars at noon. I thought was like hilarious. It's, I, 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 how do, I don't know how to explain it. It's like, I think on Twitter, I called it the year of living brainlessly because it reminded <laughs> me so much of the year of living dangerously. It's like these two expats who are, you know, in South America, uh, Margaret, uh, I think it's Margaret, uh, Qualley, That's her name. I can never remember her name, but, uh, yeah, that's her. Yeah. Yeah. Annie McDowell's daughter. <laughs> um, and, uh, Joe Alwyn and they, she's like this like journalist who, is like really bad at her job and just kind of like sleeping around to get stories, but not really getting stories. And she's just kind of like floating th- through their penniless, always in danger. And then Joe Alwyn is like this spy for like a American corporation trying to do business there. And they both are just so stupid. They have no chemistry whatsoever, but they're just attached to each other at the hip and th- their stupidity just kind of like, keeps resulting in like locals getting killed like brutally while they like every scene is them getting in a, into a situation. And then one of the locals like just getting shot in the head because of it. And them just kind of walking out of frame into the next scene. And it's like, it's so funny to me because it just feels like Claire Denis is just, this is like her, like she, she's been very anti-colonialism through a lot of her work with like Bo Trevi and everything like that. But this one feels like so overtly anti colonialist where it's just the white people keep getting everyone else in front of them killed to a point where it's like comical. You can't help but laugh at it. And I was just so shocked that this received so much venom because it's one of her most overtly funny movies. And I wonder if that's what threw people is that maybe they just weren't used to her sense of humor or something, but I don't know. I loved it. I thought I was laughing so much at it. And and it's just, I thought it was gorgeous and I don't know. I I really liked that. I don't know if either of you have seen it yet, but I had a really good time with it. This is the only movie on any of our lists that I haven't watched yet. I have a screener from A24 just sitting basically on my kitchen counter that I haven't cracked open yet. But now I really want to watch it, having having heard you describe it this way, because, like, let's face it, Claire Denis, not really known for her sense of humor, let's say. Uh, most of her movies are very punishing uh, because Martin, we just did that new French extremity episode (laughs) and I revisited uh, trouble every day and bastards for that. And neither one of those are pleasant. Let's say they're not not light afternoon watches. Well, and we, we also rewatched high life for our Robert Pattinson episode. Right. um, Which I really love that movie. Um, uh, Brandon, I remember taking my parents to see <laughs> to see white material in the theater. Oh my god! Because we were looking for something to see. And there was, I was like, oh, we were in Nashville. I'm like, oh, I like Claire Denis. We went and saw that, and it was just 
fucking crickets with David <laughs> Kathy did not did not go over well. Well, well it think... sounds like Margaret Qualley's the only fuck box in this movie, too. Yeah, for real, <laughs> she is. And, <laughs> and, and she's really good at it. She has a she has such a bizarre physicality that almost in a weird way reminds me of this is such a weird comparison because I don't know if anyone else really felt this way, but her physicality reminds me of uh, Denis Levant's physicality at the end of Beau Travai, where he's like dancing oh. and letting loose. But that's what she feels like in the entire movie. She's just so gangly and odd. And I don't know. It's one of my favorite Claire Denis performances. And I just was really taken with this movie. And, and if you go into it knowing that like it doesn't I don't know if it plays as a comedy if you don't pick up on it right away. So maybe I can see why, because it's very dry. So I can see why people were really struggling with it, but I don't know. I just was like, after like the third or fourth time, they they're in like this situation where it's like, how are they going to get out of this? And then some poor, you know, South American person's brutally murdered and they're fine. You're just like, Oh, I see what's going on here. And it's like, it's very funny, but um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I definitely don't think it's for everyone. Totally get it, but I just I really connected with it. Benny Safty's in it too, right? Yeah, and it's a very funny cut to his face when he first shows up because you don't expect it at all. Like it's kind of like a uh, uh, what's that meme with the, the soy face meme where the guy's pointing behind him, going like, "Oh, like that's kind of like what I did when it happened." I was like, <laughs> "Holy shit, Benny Safty!" <laughs> So, Martin, what's your number five? Um, I'm going to stay artsy because kind of like Brandon's mine as I get to the top of the list are really action and fun heavy. Um, But I think Tar is my number five. And I say that because I can't stop thinking about it. Um, And it really kind of rekindled my love of like cancel culture. Yes, of course. Uh, no, but like dense film criticism. There's been so many great pieces written about how to read the film. I don't think any of them are right because there is no one right way to read the film. There's also been some really bad. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's been some stupid shit. <laughs> really stupid shit. But I like I even like that because it's out there. And I like that. Like it's, you know, like uh, it's like uh, Hansel says in Zoolander goes, I like Sting. I don't really listen to his music, but the fact he's making it, I respect that, you know, and um, I felt for Tar that it's actually quite similar to what you were saying, Brandon, about uh, Stars at Noon. It's funny. Like there's a lot of like really, really dry humor in it. Um, I think, again, watching it, I watched it again um, and there's so much like Tarkovsky like shit in it too. Like everything in the basement of her with the dog, that scene where, you know, some people now speculated that when she comes out, like she died there and it's like, all right, fuck that. But, um, <laughs> I, but I, I was feeling that someone else basically said that's a tar- our Tarkovsky scene. And I'm like, Oh, you're totally right. And there's been so much more to like take from it every time I watch it. And every time I like read more about it, uh, it's just like a really thick novel of it's like meaning and, and, moments you miss. And the one thing I did love the the person who did the kind of visual essay of where the ghosts are, there's like, it's almost like fucking, um, house on a haunted hill or sorry, haunting a hill house where it's just like, Oh, there was a fucking person in that frame in the background. It's these little things. I thought, um, it's just, a, it's just, it kind of keeps giving as a movie. I still need to revisit this one because I watched it the first time in the theaters with Carrie and she, positively loathed this film. Like (laughs) you thought I might hate it too. Yeah. I I wasn't sure how you were going to react to it, but I mean, like I was so hyped for it because as 
has been documented on this podcast and via many Twitter jokes that I've made. Uh, I've been waiting for Todd Field to come back for, you know, ever since I saw In the Bedroom in theaters. And she almost ruined it for me because she fucking hated it so much. Like she was doing the like lean over and just look at me with her eyes raised like really motherfucker you dragged me to this and it's become like an actual joke in our household that when the the screener showed up for award season i handed it to her and i was like it came they said <laughs> it's they here. actually sent me two copies one for you and she's like <laughs> fuck you burn this thing but no i i agree like I mean, TARS is an incredible film. I mean, it has what many people can consider like the performance of the year from Kate Blanchett. The scene that yeah, everyone's talking about. The scene of the year with the, the Juilliard uh, instructional scene, which is amazing uh, to kind of go back and rewatch. A.O. Scott did a whole breakdown in the Times just about that scene. Yeah, I mean, it's just that awesome. long take is, yeah. is ridiculous. Um and I mean, and much has been written about the ending, which has either pissed people off, made them laugh or either scratch their head, too. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, Tar's great. Yeah, I I really love Tar. And, you know, you know, adding on to what you guys are saying, one thing that really connected with me for it was it reminded me a lot of Personal Shopper in a way, just because that's yep. one of my f- favorite movies. And that's probably is my favorite movie, that of Miami Vice. And um. And it just reminded me a lot of like how in Personal Shopper, Kristen Stewart, you know, whatever's haunting her feels like it's manifested by her grief. And you're never quite sure if, it, if they're real ghosts or just something that's being brought to life because of her grieving process. And similarly with this, it feels like it's it's not so much ghosts that are haunting Kate Blanchett. It's, you know, the it's her guilt haunting her. And that's how it's manifesting. And, and I really love how they kind of deploy the, you know, ghost in this, so to speak. I just, it's really eerie and it's all, it is really funny too, especially that ending. That ending's hilarious. <laughs> and I, I don't know how anyone could hate that ending. Cause it's just like, you know, I, I've seen people say, you know, she, she, you know, it, you know, to, people misreading it, you know, saying she's get it, you know, she got away with what she did and everything. And it's like, I don't think the movie's about whether, she was canceled or whether she, you know, she survived cancel culture. I think reading it on those terms is like very limiting. I, and I think that that ending is just so funny. Yeah. I've been fascinated by the people who think it's condescending to video game nerds. Oh, wow. (laughs) Where I'm just like, all right, pack it in guys. (laughs) That is a very online way to look at it. Well, yeah, Brandon, it's funny because I think when we did the episode, I said, I think I said something similar. I said, personal shopper might've been my double feature for tar where I was like, it just has that Asias feel to it, you know, yeah. um, as a film that, like you said, that haunting because personal shopper too, very, very aloof people too. <laughs> These kind yeah. of like yeah. mo- <laughs> modern, modern intelli- intelligentsia kind of floating through space. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I love both movies. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And and, and like you said, it, it might be the performance of the year. It, um, I, I go back and forth between that and uh, Rebecca Hall and Resurrection, but that's one I just have like a very strong fondness for. But I mean, if I'm being honest, it probably is Kate Blanchett just because I, I think it might be her best performance ever. I, although I don't know. Which maybe, is saying something. Yeah, because she's a, given so many and maybe it's just recency bias, but it's just this one is pretty incredible. <laughs> 
it's like good acting and also the most acting. Yeah. It's like, it's like where sometimes most means bad in my opinion, where it's like, Oh, you acted more. It's like, no, like there, she has so much to do yeah. like, in this film. Well, it's also a testament to, to the design too, because uh, whoever picked her wardrobe oh out, God. like that defines the character as much as her performance style does. Like the, the entire piece is is put together in such an immaculate and like exacting fashion. But then again, that I think that's kind of the point of why like field even runs the credits backwards to begin for like five fucking minutes or whatever it is, because it's just literally being like nothing, no movie, no performance, no piece of music, art, what have you is made by one person. Like it's, it's usually a collective. Well, yeah, because he's almost like deconstructing the idea of the auteur, right? Of yeah, because she just takes so much ownership from the first scene of like, well, I'm the one keeping time. Like, it all starts with me. Right. You know, and the hubris of that is – he's like, I'm going to get this out of the way now. So my number five is a bit of a cheat uh, <laughs> because neither one of them are probably considered movies by anyone, and there's two of them. Um, but they're united by one man, and that's uh, the bear and we own this city. Um, both are the best pieces of television that I've seen all year um, that really push the medium in a totally new direction. I mean, obviously, that's not a new thought. Um, a lot of TV these days is basically the, the new cinema, yeah. let's say. But the bear, I just rewatched it. I actually finished rewatching it today. Um, strange to see your own life to a degree reflected to such a, uh, realistic degree, let's say, um, because it's like the bear is the people who I spend time with in restaurants and bars and stuff every day. It, it, the first time somebody yelled corner or behind <laughs> or whatever, I was like, what the fuck is going on with this? But the other thing too, is that. It's one of the great cigarette break, like pieces of, of fiction in a long time. Um, there's actually two uh, works that I've picked for my top five here that uh, almost entirely revolve around cigarette breaks, which I found kind of funny. But it's it's one of those movies that, you know, for all of the authenticity and chaos and the way that it represents uh, the service industry, it also I think the most remarkable thing about it is how it celebrates those small victories that you kind of relish in every day and that keep you going. Those weird little bits of wisdom, like when he talks about, you know, starting a grease fire the day after he, you know, won food and wines, you know, best new chef and how he stares into the fire and goes, if I just let this go, all my anxiety goes too. but then you put the fire out. And like, to me, that's what the entire show is about is literally finding a way to navigate through your own anxieties that present themselves in everyday life and finding kind of the weird little bits of beauty and, and wisdom and stuff that, that keeps you kind of inspired every day. And frankly, wanting to go back to a job that is basically consuming you and killing you the entire time. It's just a remarkable bit of uh storytelling. Yeah. I, I, 
I'll just you convinced me to watch it um, because I refused to. I I worked in restaurants for 12 years and uh, bartended and uh, never did back a house, which is a whole new level, I think, of difficulty. Yeah. Um, And I had that respect for my back of the house brothers and sisters. And when I finally decided to watch it, I mean, it's such a new Hollywood kind of like dropping you into this world, um, almost like Cassavetes-esque at moments. And but on top of the filmmaking, like that opening episode of just like the real time, like stress of just running a restaurant. What was amazing, how was the humanity that kind of came through was I remembered the friends I had made like in a restaurant, which there's nothing you've never had a better friend at work that had a restaurant. I just don't think there's anything that compares. Um, well, I had a chef that I worked with uh, for a long time who had a saying or he said, you know, when you work in the service industry, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. Yeah. And it's literally like you commit yourself to the people around you and they become your family because they're literally you're there so much. If you're if you're actually working a service job and not just doing like the four days a week or yeah. like six shifts or whatever, you make your money and you go home, but you're actually involved in managing and creating and stuff on, on the front and back of house, like you're there 50, 60 hours a week. And like, they're the only fucking people that you see. So that not only becomes the thing that pays you and keeps your bills, you know, from going into the red, but also like they're the, that's, you know, your whole social life is drinking after work, finding that one bar that's still open till two in the morning because you want to you know go blow off steam or whatever. And like, and frankly, like, you know, for how, uh, out of touch it is anymore for anyone to smoke cigarettes. It's like you, you take up cigarettes both because of the stress and because like, it's a way for you and another person to walk out of the building just for five minutes and be like, yo, fuck those people. I'm never trying to talk to them again, but it's, and like, it just captures all of that. So perfectly also has one of the best soundtracks. Oh, it's amazing from like, as soon as, uh, refused new noise came on. I was like, Oh my God, this is basically like made specifically for me. The first episode ends with Pearl jams, animal like Radiohead scores, the most emotional moment. And then our boy, Johnny B John Bernthal shows up for one scene for one scene. And like, steals the entire thing basically becomes like the the god that's like hovering over and kind of haunting everybody another ghost film exactly right yeah. he's he's haunting the that space and and the expectation of you know our main character like i'm not my brother you right know, i don't know i don't know what to do and uh yeah that that show and for those who haven't seen it, um, the I mean, the ending rocked me hard. Like, yeah, uh, me. it lands. And then, but the other show, also one of my favorite. We own this anything city. of, yeah, this year. I mean, it's the spiritual sequel to The Wire. David Simon and George Pelicanos going back to Baltimore to investigate, basically almost like twenty years later from when that first story takes place, and are investigating, you know, systemic corruption inside the police force. Who would have thought um, <laughs> really, out, really out of the norm for them? Yeah, you know? <laughs> but this one is really the first series in their entire run where Pelicanos is like the big guy, the showrunner instead of Simon. And it really shows because it has uh, the kind of pulpy feel of his crime fiction and everything. And but again, it's like their prince of the city. 
basically right down to having treat Williams show up for a scene and just kind of blow everybody out of the water. But again, John Bernthal showing up and is just, this is the performance of the year for me. Like it, I know his opening Shack, scene is like the scene too. Yeah. You it's know? It, like, he's absolutely incredible in this. And like, I've always been a Bernthal fan. Um, I think anything he appears in is instantly elevated by at least half a star just because he decided to show up and like do whatever weird shit he's going to do that day. But like he gets to stomp around like fucking Potomac Godzilla in this, <laughs> in this show. And he's just he's so fucking awesome as Wayne Jenkins. Like it's just it's the character of the year for me. It's the performance of the year. But also like you have Josh Charles. Also showing oh, up and giving man. one hell of a performance as the probably an even shittier cop in Baltimore. And like, it was just nice to also be back in this city with these people, no matter how shitty, you know, they are or whatever, because it, it feels in a strange way, kind of comforting just because I always loved the wire and Treme and the deuce and everything. But like Baltimore, even though those other shows, like they're always been great at capturing environments and specific places and everything. Baltimore is obviously their home and the place that they know the best and will represent in, in again, the most authentic way possible. And man, we on the city is just a fucking total towering achievement. Yeah. I'm not, you know, a big TV guy, I'm more movie, but like that's a show that like, the second it came on every week. Yeah, we were just I, we were, each we were, other. We were like, oh my God, you see that? Because I was, I was losing my mind. I mean, like, because The Wire was a show I took a long time to get to. I was probably five years late to it. It's my favorite show of all time. And it's one of the best, you know, best things ever. We're those stereotypical white guys. Who but it's like, that, have you seen The Wire But yet? it's fucking good. <laughs> like, it's good, you know? I, I'm like you, Martin. Uh, I, I'm not a huge TV person, which means I haven't, seen either of these, but I've been wanting to see we own the city a lot just because I, I like the wire a lot and I love John Bernthal. So I really do need to give it a chance. I'm just, I'm one of those people that no matter how I feel about the show, good or bad, I'll start something, I'll get two episodes in and then just forget to go back to it. And I have so many shows where I'm just like two episodes in and I just, they're just hanging there waiting for me to come back. But this is one I really, I really want to check out because I've heard nothing but good things. And I, and I love Bernthal. I've loved him since I saw him in Walking Dead. And I stopped watching Walking Dead when he got killed off. And apparently, I guess I've, I've heard that I made the right decision because I I just everything I hear about that show is gets worse and worse. So but how uh, it managed to, to make it to season 93 or whatever the fuck it, they're on now. It though. feels like it feels like it's been on my entire life. It, it's insane. I don't know. And they have like a million spinoffs and now like it feels like every surviving cast member is getting their own spinoff. So it hasn't really ended. They're just making more shit, more of it. I, I don't know. Porn but, parodies. Yeah, <laughs> but he was great on it. I mean, he was like, like you said, he elevates everything he's in. I don't even know if the first season and a half is, is good or if it's just, I thought he was so good in it, but yeah, he's someone that he's like must watch for me. So I ha I have to watch this. His honestly, his Punisher show for Netflix was fucking crazy good. Like oh, yeah. hard yeah. R. There's a scene where he like full on old boys an entire like, but slitting people's throats with like a fucking pencil and like it's it's Marvel, so take it or leave it. But like it's brutal. I'll leave it. Yeah, that's one of the last Marvel things I've I really really liked. Uh, 
I, I, especially the first season. I thought the first season was really good. No, I, I totally agree. That and the couple first seasons of Daredevil, too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What's your number four, Brandon? Uh, I, I went back and forth a lot uh, between The Fablemans and Nope, and I ended up going with Nope, which is probably the better Spielberg movie this year. <laughs> um, but I but I do love both of them. Uh, but but Nope, uh, it feels like Jordan Peele would like just totally synthesize. Wow, I can't talk. <laughs> synthesized. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> everything that Spielberg did so well in the 70s and just made like. Like kind of an astonishing summer blockbuster that also is such a specific love letter to like the weirdos that populate movie sets and like it, it it's so I don't know how he did that, how he, he it's such a unique needle to thread, because, again, it, it's a, just a crowd pleasing movie on its surface about people chasing a monster. But then, you know, you go deeper than that. And it's just you. You have people like Michael Wincott's character who like I, I haven't been on many film sets, but I've been on like a few indie ones. And there's so many people like Michael Wincott, like the older elder statesman who like is like this artist and it's just like, it's so wild that he captured those kind of archetypes in this fun summer blockbuster. And I, I think, I, I don't know if it's his Peel's best movie, but I think it's my favorite. I think that the more outsized he gets in his ambitions, he gets more exciting for me. So that I went with Nope for my number four. Yeah, I would, um, I, I think what's interesting is that I think he's becoming better as a director. Um, just, yeah. I, I had um, some issues with some stuff in the script, not uh, just in terms of like structure and uh, You're wrong about the Jacob and I fought about this. Uh, <laughs> I, I literally thought our friendship was going to be over, but no, but I actually, I saw it twice and I saw it on IMAX. And I, I think that a theme I was, I was kind of just taking some more notes before we talked today. And I was thinking about like why I was so happy with 2022 is like, a lot of things really focus on the grandeur of cinema. Um, there was a lot of big movies and like Nope was one of those movies I cannot believe was made. Yeah. Like, I, I rated R. You only get to make that if you're Jordan Peele. Exactly. But it, it made me excited. It was a non IP piece of filmmaking. And there's some, when it goes full IMAX, um, I, I saw the Bob Bullock here in town, which I bring up all the time, but like when it goes full IMAX uh, aspect ratio, it's for like the end scene of them trying to take down the ship and it's truly just like transcendent cinema. I mean, he and Hoyt van Hotema, the cinematographer, I mean, are on fire in that movie. And so as a visual thing, I think also to your point, Brandon, like he did what, um, JJ tried to do with super eight. Yeah. Like I think JJ totally fell on his face with super eight of like trying to do pastiche, but it's empty. And this felt full of heart, full of the kind of hope of a Spielberg movie. Um, on top of just the great grand like action filmmaking. One of the things I really loved about it, and I saw some complaints about this where, you know, everyone thought that there was going to be like this big reveal at the end where, you know, Jean Jacket was going to be something else entirely. And I kind of liked that the movie was just kind of stuck to itself and was like, no, it's just a big monster. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just eating people. We don't know what it is, why it's here. And I, I really liked that. I liked the amb- ambiguity of it more so than like, you know, sorry to anyone who's listening who hasn't seen Nope, but I mean, uh, but I, I like that it wasn't a big, you know, UFO or something. I mean, maybe it was, maybe, you know, it was an alien, but there's really no hardline explanation. And I really like that. And I saw some people disappointed that it, it wasn't more than what it was, but I thought that that was fine. Well, and it ties into the theme of the movie more, right? Because this is about, 
it's for all of the close encounters of the third kind or other alien movie comparisons, even in the kind of the Spielberg realm, this is his jaws. It's about capturing the uncapturable and taking down that thing that, that is just devouring people and making this, this quiet kind of community. It's disrupting it completely. But at the same time, it, the, thing in the sky, Jean Jacket being an almost undefinable entity ties into how it's a movie about, you know, loving movies and capturing that uh, impossible image with a camera. That's why, you know, Michael Wincott's characters essentially are Quint in this movie is that he's the one who has always been seeking out this kind of uh, ecstatic truth uh, that he's trying to, to, lens and that he builds his own basically like crank IMAX camera, which is fucking insane by the way. That scene is incredible, (laughs) but it really is. It's about like, this is what movies do. Right. And this is what the people who work on movies do is that they capture the images and the beasts and the things that live in our mind that we can't define, but completely haunt us for the rest of our lives. So to me, Jean Jacket never really having a true origin or name like that just makes the movie all the more powerful and kind of cohesive as a statement. Yeah. I, I feel like uh, this year too, with, with the TV you've talked about, the films we're talking about, like they're not cynical films. Like a lot of, like there's a lot of years I feel like there's a lot of cynical meta stuff. And a sure. lot of these, like Spielberg is not a cynical person. I don't think Peel is either. Um, it's more like there's, there's a real sense of like sentiment to a lot of the films we're talking about you know, looking back at this year and Nope is just as straightforward. It's again, it's not this extra layer. There's obviously a lot of like social commentary. It's peel, but it's not that meta layer or that stupid twist. Like you said, Brandon, you know, of, Oh, it's actually this. It's like, no, it's a monster movie in the end. It's actually racism. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, no, I, 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 yeah, totally agree. Um, I, in, in it's just funny to me that like, you know, you brought up optimism and everything and there's not like a real cynical uh, streak to it. And it's funny that th- that happened in the year that Spielberg maybe made his most cynical. Mo- I mean, his the Fablemans, I wouldn't call it truly cynical, but like there's so much of the Fablemans. It's just like, you know, everyone thought it was going to be like this syrupy, you know, love to movies. And then yeah. I don't when you actually see it, it's like harrowing. And, and then, so it is funny that, you know, in the year Spielberg put out his, his version of that, you know, we get Nope, which is like the hopeful side of it. And, and I, there is like a very strong parallel between Peel and Spielberg. I know that we've had, you know, a few almost Spielbergs, you know, with M night and then, uh, which I never really got that comparison to be honest. And, you know, then JJ, but I think Peel is probably the closest we're ever going to get. Well, but he still does his own thing, which is really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. So Martin, what's your number four? Um, I'm going to do a decision to leave, uh, Park Chimook's film and, uh, saw this at fantastic fest and I fell head over heels in love with it. I, I really, I love all his films, but I'm really liking late era Park Chimook where he's doing these, he's really romantic, like he's really because I, you know, Handmaiden feels like a kind of transition film of like it's the really dark, like erotic stuff in the background. But this beautiful love story that it kind of leads to like you're surprised by it, and that the gorgeous score of, of of Handmaiden. 
And then you get to this and it's, it's his vertigo, you know, it's his vertigo mixed with his to catch a thief. It's, it's the kind of the lightness of, see, I think it's his basic instinct, but uh, well, yeah, but you love your Verhoeven, but I, um, <laughs> uh, vertigo is, is the over COVID become my favorite film. Um, I've watched it a lot. I had the, I have the 4k, uh, it's just gorgeous. And, when I kind of realized what he was doing, I was like, Oh shit, that he's giving us another vertigo, but a really complex, playful one. And what I, I read an interview with him and, and I've now been in the room with him twice in my life. And I just have to like, remember how fucking cool that is. Like you go to festivals, you're like, Oh cool. I'm seeing filmmakers. Like he's a master, like he's a modern genius and he's so fucking cool and funny and self-deprecating. Like he never, He's always like, oh, I did it because I wanted to do it. He doesn't like get lost in the the kind of bullshitting. But one thing he did say was like this film is all about. It's all about like finding truth in people's faces. There's these long, almost like Bergman esque, like close ups of people because they're looking for the lie in each other. And they're kind of trying to like play this game of chess. But underneath, it's like true love, like Vertigo It's underneath all the kind of bullshit and the way they're playing each other. They actually had fallen in love. And I, the ending is. I think the most brutal ending of a movie I've seen in a long fucking time. The audience was it redeems the whole thing dead silent because yeah, you were not as taken as because you're like I feel bad. I didn't love it. <laughs> is what you messaged me after you saw it. Yeah, because like it's one of those movies that I sat there and it did wash over me, but my brain was real wrapped up in all the the technical kind of virtuoso filmmaking on display, but it all felt in service of like just something I wasn't connecting to like on any kind of emotional level. So it, the biggest cop out answer of all time uh, for me is always like, I admire and respect it, but I don't know if I like it, but that is 100% how I felt about this. I watched it twice. I think it's too fucking long. Um, and it, I could predict where it was going until the ending, the ending really kind of, like you said, knocks you out, but yeah, I like it and I admire it, but like, ah, it didn't, it didn't bowl me over. Like it did everybody else. Brandon, did you see it? Yeah. Yeah. I, it was one that took a while to sink in for me. It took a couple of days, but it ended up pretty high on my list. It was awesome. in my top, top 10. I, I think it's so subtle, subtle in parts that you almost, it, it's, it's easy to overlook and because it, you you do get wrapped up in the technique in a lot of it, like there's some stuff in this movie that I just don't understand how he pulled off. And I've seen behind the scenes stuff and it still like breaks my brain. Like there's that shot that everyone shares on Twitter of the uh, building. Him. Well, on, no, the, the one on the, oh, yeah. where he's interrogating her and the the perspective is like crazy because it's it's the shot you see them. It's like a it's the shot of both of them from the side and then you see them in the mirror it's and, the one with the reflection in it. Yeah, in in his face is in in focus and hers isn't, but in the mirror her face is in focus and his isn't and then it slowly shifts to the reverse of that. And that that shot in theaters was just like holy shit. <laughs> like I've never seen anything like that. And and it's just crazy. Like there's so many little moments in the in the movie like that where it did for me when I was in the theaters start to feel like I was focusing more on the technique than than you know what was happening in the movie, but I think that that's kind of the purpose of the movie is it wants you to get lost in everything that you're seeing that you kind of like you, you kind of get too wrapped up in it that you're not really you know processing what's happening kind of like the lead of the movie and it ended up sitting really well for me and 
uh, Tong Wei, I don't know if I'm ever pronouncing her name correctly, but, but she's unbelievable in this. She's unbelievable in everything I've seen her in. And it's just a shame that there's like a big chunk of her life where she wasn't able to act because she was like blacklisted. But like, cause, cause I think we missed a few years where, you know, she could have been like doing so, so much great work, but between this and Lust Caution and, and Black Hat, you know, she, she, I think she's one of the best actors we have and her performance in this is just so subtle. And so like, just remarkable, just like you said, so many long shots on, on people's faces and hers in particular, where she's asked to do so much by doing so little and she's just like killing it. She, yeah, she blew me away in this movie. And I think, you know, it's also like you were saying, you know, it's these these weird technique things that he does, but it's a movie about movies too, in a way, because it's about looking, you know, like a lot of De Palma stuff is yeah. too, or in Vertigo is about voyeurism looking, it's about cinema. Um, yeah, similar to Rear Window, like what you're being shown and what you're not being shown. And um that's why I think the technique falling in love with that is enough. But then I think and I watch it again. And I'm very taken by the romance kind of underneath it all. Uh, but I guess oh, one of those films, like you either get on board or you don't in a way. Well, and we should also not fail to point out that this is a movie that stops dead in its tracks to have a cop put on a cha- chain mail gun, like glove and fight a dude on a rooftop with the That's knife. the scene. Like, yeah. where you're like, I, what the fuck? <laughs> so like you for all of this kind of our pretentious an- analysis of this movie, it's still like, Oh yeah, that's right. Chanwood Park also is fucking awesome at action. Yeah. I think, I think my friend, uh, vice Victus pointed that out too on Twitter. He was like, you know, he's, he's like in the middle of this arty movie, you know, he still gets, he gets a little moment of ass beating and, and it's like, it, it's true. Like you, you forget sometimes that, like in his later work that this is the guy that made old boy, which has one of the best fight scenes ever put to film. And, and he still gets one of those in here, which is awesome. But I agree with you, Martin. It is very romantic. There's so many scenes in this movie as it goes along where it's, it's, it's so like, I, I keep using this word, but it's so subtly romantic where, you know, they're putting away, I think their chemistry is so terrific, especially when they're putting away that like little, uh, lunch set that they have together when they stop to eat lunch during the interrogation. And then the way they both put like, open it up and, and like lay out the dishes and everything and then put it back is just, they're so in sync with one another. And it's like, I don't know. You just don't see that chemistry anymore. It, it's pretty beautiful. His He's partner's do reaction to that, too, is the best. He never lets me get the premium box. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of making me think of, like, you know, it's that very, like, Wong Kar Wai kind of in the mood for love. Like, that yeah. su- the subtle stuff. And, you know, another film, uh, which is on none of our lists, uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once, uh, <laughs> does a Wong Kar Wai scene. And I'm like, cool. So it's a year of people paying, you know, homage to a great filmmaker, but one does it significantly better than the other. I, I wish I liked the other one you mentioned, and I know it's not, <laughs> we, we don't need to go into that because Twitter can't stop being insane about that movie one way or the other, but yeah, I don't yeah. know. I didn't I, hate it, but that's enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I still I'm, haven't so, finished it. I, I, I just, I, I like their ambition, but I wish in every movie that they didn't repeat the same joke five times because like, I don't know. Those two guys could be doing really great work and they kind of get lost up their own ass, which, oh, well. <laughs> yeah. Or Daniel Radcliffe's ass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so my number four is Something in the Dirt, uh, the new movie from Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead that they made during COVID. It's a very small contained movie shot on everything from like 
digital cameras to iPhones and becomes almost like these crazy, uh, crazy sort of like montage picture because it's just about more or less two guys in an apartment who find something weird and attempt to document it and then sell it. Um, and then like all Benson and Moorhead movies, it turns into something else and then it turns into something else and then it turns into something else. And by the time you get to the end of it, you're so lost in these guys, like creativity and love of humanity and each other, frankly, that you just want them to continue making their own unique kind of unclassifiable genre riffs. You know, they love Lovecraft. They love Lovecraft. Um, But they they made a movie here, too, that I think is one of the ultimate covid movies outside of just, you know, having the very contained shut in kind of paranoia about it. It's a movie that becomes about how we all sort of lost our fucking minds for a second and became obsessed with conspiracies and symbols and uh, the these things in the air that we can't necessarily see, but think that we always feel around us. And like, I, I really, really love this movie. I rewatched it for this podcast and was taken with it all over again. And I just can't believe that like, these guys are like the most successful indie filmmakers who don't ever make any money. Except, well, you know, and they do Marvel stuff. Like they did Loki. Well, no, I mean they're actual individuals. But they're oh, yeah. yeah, they're show running they're, uh, Loki yeah. now, and they worked on Moon that Knight. terrible, yeah, the the Oscar Isaac thing. Um, but like when you watch their movies, and it's it's something that a buddy of ours, James Shapiro, who put out their their second movie, Spring, um, has even said is that they're one of the most reliable brands in like the genre community that aren't necessarily bankable at all. They just like people know their stuff and look forward to their stuff, but that doesn't necessarily mean their stuff is successful. People just really admire it. Well, and people like them too. I mean, I've talked to both of them numerous times at festivals. They're just like really cool, approachable people who like love coming to fantastic fest. And like, they kind of, uh, are open to talk to, um, fans of all stripes and, to to get down and dirt about movies. And um, so I think there's a, there's definitely a kind of, especially for the festival crowd, a sense of like their success as the festival success too, of like, Hey, like they came from here. Like, we hope you make it big, you know? Oh, 100%. Very there's loyal a one of us yeah. type thing. It just helps that they are like so incredibly handsome. Oh, they're too. very good looking dudes. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, it, the, Intimidatingly so. They, so. they, they sort of have a one leg up on all of us in that department. Yeah. Uh, but I'm yeah, I, ogre next to them. <laughs> I, I love this movie so much. And I really hope that more people kind of check it out as, as XYZ has rolled it out on yeah. EOD and everything. Um, yeah, so what's, I, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Brandon. Oh, no, I just wanted to say really quick, I liked it a lot. Uh, I saw it at Sundance and was taken with most of it. And then I, I did start to feel like while I was watching it, I was like starting to wonder, like, do these guys only have one variation on the same story that they're continuously telling? And then the more it sat with me throughout the year, I was like, well, nobody else is telling these kind of stories and they're doing <laughs> it really well. So who cares? Like, it, but I really enjoyed it. And like you said, it was really it's a really good representation of, you know, people that you might even know who just, you know, sat at home all day and ended up losing their minds falling, you know, doing their own research. <laughs> and, and it just, I, it, capturing that was 
kind of really, uh, fulfilling for me to see because I, you know, I have people in my family who fell down different rabbit holes, uh, more, you know, <laughs> dangerous rabbit holes, not, not like, you know, what these guys fell down. So what's your number three, Brandon? Uh, okay. So this is where my list gets pretty basic with, you know, like the big blockbusters, but, uh, my number three is, uh, avatar way of water. Um, Fuck yeah, I, I was one big of those gym. people, yeah, big, huge gym. <laughs> I was one of those people in 2009 who was definitely like the Hurt Locker guy over Avatar. Thought Avatar was ho- like deeply stupid, and and then as the years have gone on, I you know kept thinking like maybe I was wrong about Avatar, and and I I saw the re-release this year and and was just completely blown away by it. And I think my sense of cynicism from when the first one came out is you know just as a person has completely washed away and I'm so much more into like uh, earnestness and optimism and everything. And this movie is just the sequel, I think takes everything the first one did and just does it even better. It's just, it's such a beautiful movie. I think it's perfectly structured. You know, some people have complained about the runtime, but I think, you know, you have that. I think the first hour of, you know, reestablishing the world and then the second hour of just letting you, sit in this world where, you know, these, this kid just swims around with a whale for almost an hour and it's just so lovely. And it's, there's so few blockbusters that'll let you do that because, you know, they're always getting from moment to moment to moment and never let you sit in moments. And he has the guts to just take an entire hour to let you sit in this world and breathe it in. So when that last act comes and it's full on action, you're just, you're ready for it and and it's exhilarating. And I just, I couldn't get over how much I love this movie. And, you know, you, you heard about all those people after the first one who had post Pandora depression. And when <laughs> I, after I saw this movie, I was like, I kind of get it now because I want to just live in this world. It's beautiful. And, and I, can we just talk for a minute about like the jump in like talent that Sam Worthington's had from the first? What the this? hell? Yeah, he's incredible in this movie. <laughs> He's a fucking leading man. Like he's yeah. amazing, and he's nuanced. And like this, this the scene of him saying like, "We almost, I thought we lost them," and like these little moments. Um, and then my boy Stephen Lang coming back, being great. <laughs> he is so good in this movie. I don't think I could like anything Stephen Lang does better in this movie. There's nothing he could have changed. Like not one moment. Oh, he's yeah. fantastic. And oh, sorry, good. No, you're good. I was just going to say, like, we get space whales. We get space <laughs> dolphins. We get space sharks. The Akula is we, the space shark, my like, favorite. This shit is so fucking cool. Like, Brandon hit on my favorite aspect of the movie is that it's pure experiential cinema. And that it's kind of like 2001 in a weird way in that it just – throws you into fucking space and lets you hang out in it. And you're like narrative. Eh, who gives a fuck? Like characters like, yeah, you, you, you just want to hang out with these people. You want to ride space dolphins with them and like <laughs> fight against like evil space poachers. And like, it's just, it's so fucking cool because he, he understands the idea of cinema as like a transportive tool to just take you to a place that you never have been before, be it Pandora or the fucking Titanic. Like he puts you in that place and then he's like, yeah, you got uh, 190 minutes to kill because we're going to hang out for a minute. It's just, he's so good at it. But then when he realizes it, it's time to really like give you the big narrative payoff 
that last fucking hour of action is again, just another reminder that nobody in the history of cinema has done like a big blockbuster spectacle action quite like James Cameron, frankly, in all of his sequels too, because between aliens Terminator two, and now the way of water, they're all like, it's him looking at the stuff he's done before and been like, well, I got to beat that now. Uh, so that makes me all the more excited for avatar three. I, oh, for sure. yeah, I was so blown away by that. I love this movie so much. Like, and I said, I don't know. We did a whole, obviously a whole episode on Cameron, but you know, he, he and I love the same shit and just the things he shows. I mean, like I'm literally playing in my hand right now. I have a crab suit toy from the movie. No joke while we record. Um, and I look at it every day when I work <laughs> at my table and I love it. Um, but like, Underwater mechs, high tech submarine. Marmella Soprano in a mech. Yes. Um, and I everything he shows us is, is so mind blowing. And and like to your point, Brandon, it's so like it's so it's so straightforward and it believes in family and like love and and fighting for goodness. There's not a lot of gray area with the villains. They are just evil. I was again, it does not believe in Jermaine Clement though. Oh, well, yeah, (laughs) but it has him a little short, but it has like, you know, again, like all these, these great James Cameron heel performances from like the main captain of like, Oh, we just hate these guys. We're going to all cheer when they fucking die. But so you're also your point, Jacob, like this is also a year of just transcendent, cinema. I mean, there were, there are a lot of moments in this and a couple of films that are coming up. I know on one of our lists where I, I have almost like an auto out of body experience of like pure cinematic bliss. Um, and I think this is also a year of just, you know, they say like a great film is like four or five good scenes and no bad ones. And it's like, this was the year of scenes. Like there are just so many scenes from all these films that are like, Oh, the scene. Oh that yeah. Scene, you know, Tar has that scene, but like a couple of films we're talking about in the future, especially with action of like, oh my god, like what a great movie, but also like, can you believe what he did with that scene and everything? You know, for me, it was the whale hunting scene. Like that's the greatest thing I've ever seen put on cinema in probably a decade. It's, it's so fucking cool. It's insane. It's incredible, and it and it like we'll get to a few of these other movies, but you know, just to include Avatar in them, it's just was wild to me watching you know, some of these movies this year, it made me remember that like blockbuster filmmaking can be this good consistently because it's been so monopolized by the Disney machine where everything looks and moves the same, whether it's Marvel or star Wars, they all, they all kind of feel the same and some do it better than others. But like these just, you, you watch these and you're just like, Oh yeah, like these can actually be incredible works of art. And this one, especially I just, I love there's there's no cynicism in this movie and and I love how galaxy brain he's gotten as he's gotten older <laughs> with like you know Quaritch coming back in a different body in the body of his enemy which is just such a such a cool thing to do and then you have you know Sigourney Weaver playing a child in this movie and doing it well like that character should not work it you know it shouldn't work based on that it shouldn't work that it, it's such a hokey religious kind of character but it just like it all is so earnestly played and she plays, I think it's one of her best performances ever. She plays it so well that it's just, I, I was so moved by that character to a point where I was like, am, am I actually spiritual? I'm not, but I was just like, <laughs> maybe I do believe in something. Cause she, it's, she's just such a moving character. I couldn't get over it. Like if I voted on anything important, I think she might be my supporting performance of the year. Like I just could not believe how good she was. Hell yeah. 
because when you heard about that, that he was bringing her back as her own teenage daughter, you were like, what? And, and it just works. And it's so funny watching the behind the scenes footage of like 70 something Sigourney Weaver running around in a mocap suit with children. It, and you're, it looks so goofy, but then you see it ha- play out on screen and it's just it's unbelievable. Well, because she's a, she's a little bit weak in the first one. She's because yeah. some of her lines are so like. I'm going to kick his corporate butt and it like kind of falls flat. And I'm like, Oh, you're going to get her to play a kid. And like, you're right, Brandon. She actually does it. Like she's so these little moments are that she just absolutely kills it. So what's your number three, Martin? Uh, My number three is going to be, and this, this order could change, but I'm going to, this is on my top five uh, crimes of the future. And this is, I know is one that yeah, I yeah. think we all had in our top five. Yeah. Um, and so I knew there'd be no <laughs> argument. I appreciate you both. Let me put it on my list. Um, the return of a master. Um, I, I saw it uh, uh, early with, with Jacob and I stood up and like, clapped you saw that you were probably clapped and i kind of ran around the room it was weird because we were in my living room yeah but i ha- i had to <laughs> and I, I i started that in the theaters more too like i'll clap for a good fucking movie i'll be that weird dude i, I don't even give a shit it's like it deserves really three cats out man yeah <laughs> um but this one i thought was a great like we've talked a couple times this year about these filmmakers looking back at a career and it's kind of Rosetta Stones and it's also like a, uh, a summation of a career. But also, just, I think if you forget all of that, it works on its own. I love the idea. Um, I love also the size of the movie that he didn't have a huge budget and like they're shooting in Greece. And it's this idea of like there's there's a uh, hints at a larger world, but we're just seeing this small corner. And it reminded me a lot of Inner Zone and Naked Lunch of just this great little like this is a place that doesn't exist. It is an amalgamation of every coastal community in the Mediterranean. I love the opening image of this kid digging for stones with this giant capsized fucking ship. From that moment, I said, I'm going to love this movie. And I mean, I turned to Jacob, but like five minutes, 10 minutes ago, is this just about Cronenberg, like talking about himself? Like that's Cronenberg. And it's about like being usurped by other filmmakers and not knowing how to stay relevant. And then kind of coming back, you're like, oh, you get it. I'm like, okay, cool. Cause I like that. And Vigo, man, Vigo in like one of the great director actor partnerships of all time, giving us a performance that's, Fucking hilarious, frankly, with all of his grunts grunts and indigestion and uh, it's so goofy. And then Leah Sadu just looking amazing and and really operating and again, commenting on Cronenberg's own kind of creative partnerships throughout his life with his wife and then his sister, Denise and stuff who have sadly passed. And that's the other thing that I feel like really hangs over this film and gives it this kind of air of melancholy is that it feels like his love letter to these women who really helped define his life and like guide him and, and be his North star that are gone now. And it's, it's a way for him to be like, remember the stuff that we used to do together and I'll be with you soon. Mm. Well, and, and you think about it's, it's, it's really beautiful when you think of it that way. And, and similar to the ending of, of tar, uh, these kind of moments where with an artist kind of like what's next for them, you know, it's moment of change and that can mean a lot of things, you know, and I don't love the film. I liked it, but like the whale, um, like, uh, uh, but like Aronofsky is, is a very, uh, 
not yeah, a very yeah. deep person, but like he also likes those transcendent endings of like, you know, he wants to be Schrader or Brisson, you know, of like these moments. Um, but it's an audio medium, so nobody can see the faces. I was just lots of eye part. rolls and, and it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, there's no, only but I, one, I, there's only one whale I liked this year, and his name was Piacon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I saw the I saw the deleted scenes of the whale where he also bounces a harpoon off his head. So I thought that, that really changed things. <laughs> the whale should be the last time that anybody's allowed to use Moby Dick in a movie. Like it's like oh, yeah. one of the yeah. great reminders that like if you give a great work to a dumbass that they're going to ruin it. <laughs> oh, I mean, Aronofsky is the definition of like the, like the frat guy who took one philosophy course and is like, I'm going to make a movie about this. You guys like the Odyssey? <laughs> <laughs> I, but, I love, yeah. I love crimes though. It's, uh, I, I like what you said too about it, you know, looking back and wondering if they've still got it. And I think that this makes a really good pairing with the Irishman and Pain and Glory where it's like these three master filmmakers who, have kind of made transgressive cinema their entire careers using these three movies to kind of look back and wonder one, was it worth it? And two, what does it mean if not, you know, nothing's transgressive anymore. And, and then I think it, it, there's, it kind of circles back into being even more powerful because if nothing's transgressive, nobody's making transgressive art anymore. So like these guys matter more than ever. And, and I just think that, that this really hits on that. And then, you guys talked about Leah Sidhu and Viggo Mortensen. I have to, I said Sigourney Weaver was my, my favorite supporting performance, but I think Kristen Stewart's right up there. Which, oh, she's so great. fucking weird. And this it's, is so awesome. It's so funny. Like, I, I just think like she, I think she's very aware of, you know, what, I think I said this somewhere. She's very aware of what you think of Kristen Stewart, the actress. And she kind of puts all of that into this performance. She's my favorite actor working right now. And just, this is unbelievable. Like she's so weird and it's and mega she, stew. Yeah. She plays up all those weird little ticks that she has and into like, I, I saw someone on Twitter. I wish I could remember the wording, but they said that she's, she's done more for equality than any other actor because she's the first woman to, to she's finally, what, what was it? She, she's playing a role typically designed for men, a, a creepy little rat. And, like, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's true. Like, she's just like this little weirdo that like even freaks Vigo out. Like there's that scene where she comes, he comes around the corner and she, she kind of just glides up to him and he jumps and he's like, Oh, it's you. And it's just, it's so <laughs> funny. Like I just, it's one of the funniest performances I've ever seen. And she's just incredible in it. Well, it's sort of like decision to leave is, and what we talked about with the, the fist fight on the rooftop is that it's easy to get caught up in all of our pretentious readings of these things. But at the end of the day, Crimes of the Future is really fucking funny. It is. And, yeah. and, and gross. <laughs> and gross. Yep. And, and gnarly. And it's Cronenberg totally being like, oh, yeah, you guys kept asking me to make one of these fucking body horror movies again. Well, here you go. Here's a whole pint of like mint ice cream version of body <laughs> horror. And it's, it's so awesome. And well, to get, oh, sorry. Uh, go ahead, Brandon. I was going to say, and to get pretentious again, really quick. I, I love that. It, it almost feels like this is his final statement on body horror because it feels like in a career where he's kind of fought to understand his own body in a way, this is the one where he's, it feels like, you know, maybe it's okay not to understand it and just to let his body take over all the weird shit that goes on inside your body take over. And I love that final shot of Vigo just in ecstasy oh. where, because it feels like Cronenberg's finally saying, you know, 
I get it and it's okay. Yeah. I think, uh, off what you were saying to Jacob about, uh, or both of you were saying about like looking, you know, looking back at a career, um, it makes you think too about a film. I don't think on any of our lists is Banshees of Anishirin. And I think the, the, the moments of Brendan Gleeson's character saying like, I don't want to waste any more time with you because I want to do something with my life. I want to be remembered for something, you yeah. know? And there's that theme of like, also it feels like a COVID movie of like, it's, you know, there's this war happening right over there. People are stuck on this Island. It's very kind of claustrophobic while it is beautiful and open, but this idea of like, how do I leave my mark in a world? that's like basically falling apart around me. So you can kind of see that kind of bleeding into a lot of these films this year. Oh, for sure. Yeah. My number three is uh, Bones and All, uh, yeah. Luca Guadagnino's, yeah. I guess, young adult fiction <laughs> adaptation about lovers on the road and on the run who are also cannibals. Um, it reminds me of Near Dark yep. the most. And uh, frankly, the other movie that it reminded me of was uh, Jonathan Demme's Something Wild. Like, I think there's a lot of Jonathan Demme in this movie um, just because, uh, namely, the way he casts all these roles is that, you know, Demme always took to that Corman role of like every role should be a face that we recognize. And like from Andre Holland, you know, playing our, our, Oh yeah. Father in the beginning, uh, to Mark Rylance's performance of the year. My favorites of the year. Really? <laughs> Number one is Rylance in this Sully. I, I just, um, I, it, it started and he started doing his thing. I said, oh, I'm in for whatever you're oh, doing. Yeah. And then when it gets to the end and you see his whole kind of his arc is very interesting. Um, and I didn't I'd seen a few Rylans, but I was not super up on, on his work. And I was like, this is a horror character for the ages. I think I really believe it's going to go downtime. Down, it's the down. best Stephen King character, well, not in a Stephen King book. It, the whole oh, thing yeah. is Dr. Sleep. It's so Dr. Sleepy. Yeah. You know, he's traveling off the grid characters who are somewhat supernatural. They all are kind of hippie ish in that way. Um, the eighties, nineties, early nineties aesthetic. And then, he, you know, Stuhlbarg showing back oh, up man. again and doing the same thing that he did in, in call me by your name with stealing the whole movie with basically one speech and one scene and also being paired with David Gordon green. That that being cre- being creepy. Yeah. Yeah. Being really, really weird. Um, but also it's a great reminder that Timothy Chalamet, you know, for as much as a lot of us make fun of Timothy Chalamet because he's like the ultimate ultimate sort of like waif boy movie star for like not our generation, let's say it's that he's so utterly magnetic whenever he's on screen. He's so great in this. And, and frankly, Guadagnino just brings something out of yep. him that I can't help but be transfixed by. But I love this movie. I think it's not only a great uh, romance it's also just a great horror film because i watched this at fantastic fest the first time was totally blown away by it and then got a screener for war season and my parents were in town for for thanksgiving <laughs> and i stayed up late one night and picked the movie out and my mom stayed up and watched it with me and was completely revolted by like <laughs> some of the gore scenes in it, because I remembered it being like kind of gnarly, but like not too crazy. But then like that first time when Mark Rylance bites into that old woman's stomach, I swear to God, my mom almost threw up on herself. She you was like, Heidi Whitey's on. And yes, yeah, she was like, <laughs> Oh my God, what are we watching? And I'm like, Oh yeah, I guess I should have warned you. This gets weird. 
I I really like this too, and I like Guad- I like how Guadagnino just places you in moments and lets you just live in them. I think that's something he does really well, and he does it well with adding you know great music over top of it. It's something he did well in Call Me by Your Name, and then in this, and he's just he's very good at romance, and just it there there's I I I liked. I loved this movie the most when it was just the two of them traveling across the country to like some of the best soundtrack of the year. Yeah. New order just drop in. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just, it's beautiful. So Brandon, what's your number two? Uh, my number two is RRR. And it's funny because I had a weird relationship with this movie where I saw it by myself in a theater the Friday it came out and came out of the theater and just blasted off a tweet that was like, Oh my God, this was incredible. And it, because Indian cinema in the country of India itself is so huge, the tweet kind of blew up and like, and it was a bunch of people just like, you know, responding to it from India saying like, Americans love our work. Uh, Oh my God. Yay. And like this, I kind of was surprised at the phenomenon that this movie became, just because there was no one in my theater when I saw it. And again, I'm in Pittsburgh. So, I mean, I guess that's not a good reflection of like, you know, movie going audiences, but, um, I, I don't think I was prepared for this movie to become the phenomenon. It was where, you know, it, it got to a point where it was like, I hadn't seen it in a little bit. And then I started seeing clips of people like in LA dancing in front of the theater and screaming. And I was just like, do I actually like this movie as much as I do? <laughs> Cause like it was like starting to get a little annoying seeing and seeing like that kind of reaction. And then you had, you know, some people have been seeing it like 30 times and it's like, geez guys, like, you know, there, there's other Indian cinema that's just as good as this. And like, but then I watched it again and I was like, Oh no, this movie's fantastic. This movie is excellent. And I realized that I need to not judge things based on their audiences <laughs> because it, it's just a great movie. It's, um, it's deeply silly in a lot of ways, like a lot of Indian cinema, but I, but I, I think Rajamouli is just unimpeachable as a filmmaker. There's just like, we, we talked about Avatar and, you know, we'll probably talk about it again with another movie coming up. It's just, it's experiential cinema where it's just three hours of some of the craziest shit you've ever seen over and over and over again. And it's just deeply, strange and weird but also just so earnest so lovely and i just i really loved it so confession i did not watch this till last night oh wow uh, so <laughs> oh uh, is that why you texted me yeah. i thought you were re-watching it no um Ooh, so maybe motherfucker so i had a ticket to see it in theaters like when it first came to austin um and i think i, I got covid and i didn't get to go and and I missed a couple of screenings and then and I actually, to your point, Brent, I kind of got annoyed by the discourse because I was like, there's no way this is going to be as good as the buildup. Yeah. And I am happy to say I'm, I was wrong. Um, I watched it last night and I stayed up way too late watching. I said, well, I should at least watch a little bit to see so I can talk about it on the pod tomorrow. And this would have been my probably number one of the year. Um, oh, wow. It literally jumped <laughs> to my number one. Um this made me this made me so happy. Their bromance made me I, the moments for me the dance number, the first big dance number at the the rich people's house, the governor's house. I watched that six times today. The I had not to dance. Yeah, the not to not to. I I played it on repeat on my TV on Netflix. So I was like try, I was like writing a mattress review and like and I kept basically going back to like minute forty seven fifty six or something and starting it again. 
And, you know, to your point, Brandon, like a lot of these films are, they're so earnest. It's so earnest. It's so like human and, and beautiful and also just really cool. Like oh, the, yeah. the sniper <laughs> scene where he has the look, the long flashback after the midpoint, you're like, Oh wait, what you realize why he's doing this. And like their bromance reminded me a lot of a John Woo film of the way that a lot of times, like you have the cop and the criminal befriending each other and then teaming up to fight the bad guy. Yeah. Like, this totally could have been like Chow Yun fat and like Tony long. Yeah, or something. Exactly. Oh yeah. And I sure. love those movies. We all do. Um, but I dude, I'm so, I'm so sorry to see you with, with, with an audience. This movie is absolutely a 10 out of 10. I've never seen anything like this. And I've watched Indian cinema, but this is a whole new level of insanity. I was dragged to this movie early. I don't think quite opening weekend, but like a week or two into its run because uh, our buddy James Shapiro saw it, called me and was like, you got to fucking see this shit. And I was like, really? I don't know, man. He's like, no, I'm buying us tickets and we're going. <laughs> so we went. So he did. He bought us tickets and we went to the Galaxy Highland and it was in their biggest house with the fucking Dolby. And he literally went to uh, the projectionist, the managers and stuff. He was like, can you turn the sound all the way up on this movie? And they <laughs> did. And it was like deafening. But 20 minutes into it, I was like, oh, my God, I'm so happy he took me to this because it's just it's incredible. It's amazing experiential cinema. It it washes over you in a way and invigorates you in a way. And he he did that thing where your friend looks at you like however many minutes in and sees <laughs> that you're totally into it, and gives you that grin. Like I fucking told I, you, I told you, but <laughs> he is also. The the type that Brandon w was describing that he was kind of getting a little annoyed with. He's the best version of that because he literally was doing this just with every friend that he had in Austin. I think he's seen this movie oh, at least over 10 times in theaters. He went to Beyond Fest and watched the whole like SS Rajamuli uh, retrospective that was there, saw that giant screening that beyond fest put on we're putting one on the ninth too yeah, and they're doing one with the yeah, actors. Exactly. yep mm -hmm. so i mean but like he also like he was just calling random friends of his and was like hey man i bought us a ticket to go see this movie you got to see this fucking shit like he was a real like evangelical for it and i'm glad that people like him were because you know it not only does Indian cinema not get the proper respect or maybe not respect because a lot of it's not great too. like, they are big four hour goofy maximalist <laughs> kind of bad thing. CG. Yeah. Bad CGI. But like when it does hit, you're like, Oh man. And SS Rajamuli, like in particular is he's, the master, one of the great masters of, of this sort of cinema. And like, I'm just so glad because he also got me into Ega. Ega is incredible. When he, it's, when it played yeah. Fantastic Fest like six or seven years ago, he was like, you got to see this. And again, it was one of those situations where I was like, really, do I want to sit through this fucking three hour you know, Telugu language picture where a guy is murdered and comes back as a fly. And it's like, he's in a romance <laughs> with this beautiful woman. And he was like, you have to watch this, shut your mouth. And I did. And I was like, Oh, this is pretty fucking cool. So when he told me it was from the director of Ega, that was the only way he could really sell me that RRR was going to be great. But man, I'm so glad that him and like variance pictures and all these, these places that are putting it out that they're the ones just really kind of spreading the gospel of like one of the great, 
big movies to come out in recent memory. And also, I mean, it's, it's a reminder that 2022 was like the year where blockbuster cinema, like really came back in a time when like movie theaters are dying. Well, and you know, and it also reminds me of when blockbusters really hit it's word of mouth. Like yeah. the last film I'm going to talk about and avatar two, I think Avatar 2 had a big opening, but the reason it's still going is people being like, I don't want to see it. And their friends saying, you need to see Avatar 2. Yeah, you got to go watch this shit. And they go. And R- I think RRR is that on a smaller scale. Um, but a lot of these bigger films this year um, are just friends telling friends like, I don't care what you've heard. I don't care if you don't like the trailer. Trust me. Yeah, you don't like Tom Cruise. I don't give a fuck. Yeah, it's going <laughs> to blow your. Yeah, and that's the thing. I think I, I think even my parents saw that shit and they don't, they hate Tom Cruise. I'm like, you should see that movie. Well, it was the, it's also like a throwback to the days. We've already kind of alluded the Top Gun Maverick will be making an appearance <laughs> in this podcast. But it's like it, there are throwbacks to the time when movies used to play in theaters for six, seven, ten months, a year at a time because of what you're describing, because people were going back and seeing it like they saw Titanic five, six, seven. I mean, some girls who I went to school with saw that. I remember it 20 times. <laughs> yeah. But it was like the, and they brought all their friends with them. They brought their boyfriends with them. They brought multiple boyfriends with them or like it. And because these movies just had legs in the movie theater to where now like most movies come out for a weekend even these these shit box marvel movies like they come out for a weekend they dominate and then they're on streaming in like 60 days yeah and, and they don't have the the lifespan that the blockbuster cinema that we grew up with really, really, did. really did and and i also appreciate that you know if we're losing movie stars to IP and everything where, you know, like Iron Man is more important than Robert Downey Jr. And so on. I think it's cool that India has genuine movie stars who like these, these people are like huge in those countries and they, you know, people will see those movies based on their names and, and they're kind of, I, I really appreciate that Indian movies, even the worst ones are often feel like old Hollywood movies where like, these actors can do everything. They can sing, dance, act, and fight. Like they can do everything. And it's like, we don't have that anymore. So it's really fun to see, you know, that's still happening on screen. So Martin, what's your number two? A number two is Prey. Um, and good movie. This was one that I wish I could have seen in theaters. Um, and, but this was a film I also saw at your house and I jumped off the couch seven, eight times, like <laughs> losing my mind. Again, scaring um, the cats. Yeah, all the cats just, yeah. Um, losing it. I just, I was, I could not help but just like jump up, exclaim. It, it's so exciting. I love the whole look of this movie. I love that it does right by a franchise that I really love. Um, I love how small it is too. Like it's still this like, it has the feeling of the end of the first predator where it's just Arnold versus the predator for like 30 minutes, but like for a whole movie, it's mostly her just surviving. Um, she's such a cool fucking character. Um, I, I love the redesign of the predator, the bone mask. I love like the magnet, so fucking like cool the magnet, uh, like arrow launcher on his, on his gauntlet. Like every little thing is so perfect. And to your point, we talked, you know, your idea and other people have said is like, who should do a predator film every year with a different time period, like samurai for one year, civil war, like, you know, all kinds of shit. Slavery. <laughs> maybe, maybe not that <laughs> you talked about the look of the predator. I kind of like that. He felt like a little bit of like a dirtbag predator, like a, like one that was kind of like, like a fuck up in a way. Like he, 
he, I liked, I liked that a lot about him. <laughs> and, but this movie's awesome. I, I don't have a whole lot to say about it just because like I, I loved it, but it's just like, it, it's so straightforward exactly what it is. And it just, it's perfect. It's like the perfect kind of movie or it's the perfect kind of version of that. And Amber mid thunder is incredible. She's like, great. Yeah. That, that scream at the end after she kills it, just like that was one of my favorite moments of the year. Just it, it, really, really great movie. And it, I, I wish I could have seen it in a theater too. I think it played like once somewhere at a fest mm. and I'm so jealous of those people who saw it. I think it was another Beyond Fest screening. Well, Beyond Fest was after. Oh, was it? Was it? Yeah, because this came out August third. Oh. Was it early August or six? Went that? Yeah. Well, no, I think it was one of those ones where oh. Beyond Fest does like a one-off gotcha. at like American Cinema Tech. Yeah, you're right. So my number two is X from Ty West. Um, his weird reinvention of the slasher movie slash kind of like Texas Chainsaw picture um, about a bunch of you know sex industry types who go to a farm in Texas to shoot a porno and encounter some of the worst shit imaginable. Um, I love this movie because it kind of reminds me of the blowout of, of slashers. There's just so much formal technique at play. Um, and Mia goth is just on a whole other level in, in multiple roles here. Um, and in Pearl. And in Pearl too. Yeah. I don't love Pearl as much I don't, I don't as other people. But she's do. good in it. She's great in it. I it, I didn't connect with me the way the straight ahead horror of X did. But the other thing too is I found in a weird way all of the relationship stuff with the elderly couple uh, weirdly touching when um, you know it was kind of revealed what the slashers' motivations were. Um, and there's just moments of really weird beauty in this like when she kills you know the one dude and splatters the blood all over the the uh headlights of the van and then dances in that kind of airy crimson light to that uh, amazing chelsea wolf score like i just i love this movie i saw it three times in theaters i've watched it multiple times at home since and i just for a guy who has spent a huge chunk of his cinema going life consuming every single slasher known to man. It was great to watch a slasher movie made by a guy who's obviously into slasher movies. And for all of his formal experimentation, Ty West is still like, I'm giving you what you signed up for. I'm doing the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the thing really works for me. Yeah. I think, um, I, I like X a lot too. I think Pearl undercuts, a lot of the work. Yeah, I don't need a prequel for it. I yeah. wish it didn't exist. Like, <laughs> it's cool that it does, but, like, I, I would have just been fine with one movie. Well, because I was at the, the the screening at South By where they got, got a little treat for you. And then they showed the trailer for Pearl after. And everyone's like, yeah. And I was like, I liked X. And I was like, cool. But I'm like, what? You know, it was this <laughs> weird thing where, like. You they, did what now? Yeah. they And it was like, oh, yeah, we shot a secret movie. I'm like. I mean, that's fucking cool. In our, in our day of you know everyone knowing everything, that was super a cool, like, but like, if it had been a sequel, like, if it, you know, if it had gone right to Maxine, the new one of like, oh, we're going to go to the eighties now. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I'm much more intrigued by Maxine I than I was too, by Pearl yeah. at all. Like, like Pearl, I thought was neat in, in terms of an idea. I just never really hit with me the same way it, it's hit with other horror fans. But Maxine is the one where I'm like, okay, what the fuck are we doing here now? Like this, this could be, 
fucking sleazy and gross and and right up my alley, of course. Yeah. It felt like kind of like a side project in a way of like while we're here. Yeah. It's funny because like uh, I I said this to you uh, in DMs, Jacob, that like I was like, it's going to be fun to talk about these. Or no, I think you said that we yeah, you when you asked me to be on this episode, because I I mentioned that we the tops of our list, like we we disagree a lot on some stuff. And and uh, yeah, so like I don't want to like be like a downer like i didn't love x um i but i but in relation to pearl i liked it a whole hell of a lot more because i kind of hated pearl and <laughs> and i where i think mia goth is really good in x i thought I, and i don't know this is going to be sacrilege to people because a lot of people want her to be nominated for pearl but i thought she was kind of terrible in pearl and but i don't know i i i wish i liked x more because i admire ty west's ambition so much with this series and I appreciate what he's doing. And I think X is gorgeous. There's a shot in this movie where she's floating in the lake. That's like one of the best single shots I've seen all year, but I like X a lot. I just wish I loved it, but, but I totally get why people do love it. I just, the one, the, I don't get Pearl at all. I don't understand what, what's happening with that movie and the fan base around it. But I mean, that's not for me to decide, I guess. Yeah, she feels like the, I think the the adoration of her and Pearl is very similar to Isabella Johnny from Possession of just yeah. this kind of like big arch performance where it's like going full tilt. Like, I think especially her monologue at the end of the film is like people kind of and so like that was actually what kind of got me through the movies. So the whole thing I said, is this even a movie? It felt like, again, like a side project to me. And it was like versus Maxine, I think they had an actual budget to like make a full sequel. I'm <laughs> excited this, for yeah. Maxine. It's, yeah. it's funny. It's funny to feel so excited for Maxine when I only liked X and hated Pearl. But I mean, <laughs> I think that's a testament to Ty West, though, that I keep I keep coming back. <laughs> So Brandon, what's your number one? Uh, number one is uh, it, it, uh, it's so funny with all the great movies we've had this year. I'm going with one of the most basic, but Ambulance. I am a big, yes. big, big Michael Bay fan, even through the dark period. I, I still haven't rewatched the Transformers movies, so I don't know if I can bring myself to do that. But there's people that go to bat for at least one or two of those <laughs> throughout the series, so maybe. But uh, Ambulance, I think, is like just. I don't know. I, sometimes I read too deeply into his movies. Sometimes I feel like people write him off as an idiot. And I think that he is viewing America constantly through a very dark, fucked up lens. And I think he and I have very similar ideas about the ills of America. But I think we have different different ideas of who's going to save us, I guess. <laughs> but um, but I, I, I don't know how intentional this was, but I love the image of like a tool of the, the um, medical industry being used as a battering ram, you know, to gain, you know, through the medical industry because it's fucking so many people over. And, and I think there's so many layers to this movie that maybe aren't there because he's such a, he, I, I don't, I don't know how deeply he thinks about this stuff, but at the same time, just as a movie, it's, it's thrilling. I mean, we've seen drone work for years with, you know, people oh. using drones to shoot stuff, but like, this is insane. I've never seen anything like what he does in this movie, flying under cars, flying through explosions. It's just, it's unbelievable. And you have like a nineties era prime Nicholas Cage performance from Jake Gyllenhaal in this movie. And it's just, it, it's everything I want out of Michael Bay. And, and it, I think pain and gain is still my favorite, but this is up there for me. It's, it's, it was my favorite movie when I saw it 
all the way back in, was it April that it came out? And it just, it never stopped being my number one of the year. I don't know what it is. I, and like I said, I, I maybe read too much into his, his movies, but I find a lot in there that I think people don't give enough credit to. I watched this with Martin at the press screening and the first time one of those drones went down the side of the building. I felt like my soul was exiting my body because I was I sat up straight. You saw me yeah. like kind of move was like, oh, my God, what the fuck is going on? Like it was just like. But yeah, this movie is cocaine like in cinematic form. Like you don't need drugs to feel like you're on drugs when you watch ambulance. Yeah. Like I love it so much, but to kind of hop back to a point that Martin had when he was talking about crimes of the future, one of the things that struck me, cause I've actually watched this movie five or six times at this point. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and like, this feels like Michael Bay also commenting on Michael Bay in a weird way. Like it's, I find it funny. And again, I don't know how much of this is intellectualized or if he's just being a macho dickhead. Like you could, it's, <laughs> it's maybe a little from column a, maybe a little from column B. I'm not 100% sure, but like the fact that he's literally name checking bad boys and the rock and stuff, <laughs> it feels like him actively being like, remember the movies I used to make. That's what we're doing here. Like we're, yeah. if you, if you didn't catch on, like I'm literally going to have characters, vocalize this and then I'm going to like shoot one of the craziest fucking bank robbery sequences we've seen in years. It's just, and then one continuous car chase and then the whole like sing along sequence with God, Jake Gyllenhaal. Beautiful. Ugh, it's so amazing. But also like to go back to Jake Gyllenhaal's performance, like I love how game Hall is for like any of this shit. Like, it's almost like he was like, I get to work with who now? Oh dude, that means I'm going to crank my shit to like 12, man. And he is like, he's just, he's on one the entire time, screaming, <laughs> spitting, covered in white dust. Like, <laughs> And I love it. And then the movie fucking like has the balls to include a Cholo Gatling gun. At the end, when they that, rigged I that lost fucking car up, Incredible. I was like, oh, Incredible. my God. Like, yeah, this is – and the other thing, too, is that this isn't just a maximalist Michael Bay movie. It feels like Michael Bay making a Tony Scott movie. Oh, like, it's sure. just like this is throwback 90s action to its max. And the fact that, like, for Bay, this is pretty quaint, like, budget wise, because what was it, like, 40 million? It was, oh, yeah. It, it was 30 something. It's, it's, yeah, crazy, yeah. Crazy how cheap this was for how good it looks. It's yeah. unbelievable. It looks like $300 million. And it's just, but man, I, I can't agree more. Brandon, like for a, a minute there, I thought that this was my favorite movie of the year, too. It's probably top five because, again, it, it, a whole year that was basically defined by these big ass blockbuster, like kind of throwback action uh, pieces of filmmaking. It's a bummer that like as successful as way of water and top gun Maverick are and everything like ambulance just kind of tanked, but like, you know what? All three of us, you know, recording this podcast are on the right side of fucking history in the end. Yeah. Exactly. It's really, it reminds me of, uh, like I think we talked about it when we did the episode on, on Bay, but like 
there's that era of 90s action that was all daytime, one-day action films like Die Hard with the Vengeance or Speed, which are two of my favorite action films. And I this has that similar feel of just like the 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 glaring shine of the L.A. like heats and just almost a real-time film. I I just I, he just straps you in and it never lets go. And the drone stuff again is just is so wild. Um, and, and, and again, it's really, it's very emotional at the end too. Like it, it really goes for this very Western. Well, his melodrama. Yeah. Like it's he amazing. loves this yeah. maximalist big ass melodrama sometimes in ways that doesn't even make sense. Like I don't even 100% understand the flashbacks in the be- the beginning of them, like <laughs> as kids, like just hanging out on classic cars and stuff. And I'm like, especially once we get into like what their backstory becomes, you're like, how did these, I don't, all right, you know what? This is just <laughs> Bay doing the music video, like yeah. Bay thing from the nineties. And you don't really care because like he's bringing back that same level of, corny ass emotion that like makes Armageddon such a rewatchable. Like there's a reason I've rewatched Armageddon probably 20 times and cried at it every fucking time is because like he's as much Douglas Sirk as he is his own like macho bullshit thing. Like I, I love Michael Bay. Yes. And and I just have to say before we move on that I think this still has my favorite scene of the year with the uh, chest surgery going like oh, oh my god just unbelievable to put that in this movie <laughs> absolutely gnarly too yeah it it's wild like I was losing my mind in that moment when I saw <laughs> this also feels in a weird way like Bay commenting on COVID too and that he's like we did so much shit over Zoom what if we performed heart surgery <laughs> in a moving ambulance <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> so Martin what's your number one I mean surprise surprise it's Maverick um, what a movie this incredible this movie I, I don't know what to say I mean and I, I I love RRRs. I think I spoke to at a, at a turn there. Maverick's my favorite movie of the year. I, I, this gave me a full body experience in the theater. Um, I know again, it's sentimental, it's cheese ball. It follows the beats of the original, but we talked about this on that episode. It kind of succeeds where force awakens failed or it ghostbusters afterlife failed, where it's like, you can use the same template, but you gotta do more. This is a better movie than top gun. Like it has better action than Top Gun. It does things we've never ever seen before. And I mean, for me, the other scene of the year is the trench run. I mean, him, oh, yeah. him, and I know. I think we posted this on our on our Twitter, but like that breakdown of the shot, every shot in that scene, the editing's perfect. The photography, also just a lot of the best films this year, you could see the skill and the effort on the screen. I mean, you have on one side, the digital insanity of what camera was able to pull off with avatar. And with this, it's like, no, we have a six camera IMAX rig in a real fucking plane with the actors really up there. And we get about this many minutes of footage at a time, the, the amount of time and effort it took to make this. And it's all there on the screen and we get to benefit and Cruz is fucking insane. But like he he understands like Cameron understands, like Bay understands what the people want. I mean, like how to put an image on screen is exciting that you've never seen before. He's our greatest movie star, at least of of my lifetime. Like nobody 
has tapped into for all of the ups and downs of his career. Nobody's tapped into the greatest showman side of their persona quite like Cruz has in this later portion of his career as producer and as producer actor, like a guy who just, again, understands that. Like, I, I love the fact that this was delayed for so many years because he wanted to deliver the spectacle that he believed like the, the picture that they had worked on for so long and done all because when you go into all the technical stuff of cause Joseph Kaczynski shooting these dog fights and getting the, the tiny cameras into the cockpits of them and how they were practical and yada, yada, yada. Like he knew what he had and he was like, I'm going to wait. We're going to sit on this because like, it doesn't matter if it's 10 years from now, yeah. Top Gun Maverick is still going to be fucking awesome. Like Avatar, I know water, same thing. Exactly. You can wait. It's, it's feature. I love, I love how much of the movie is about that too. And again, this is probably, you know, a lot of this is me just out my own ass, but like, I, <laughs> I, I love that there's that line in the movie where in the beginning, when he's trying to do the Mach 10, they say, you know, you don't have to do this. And or, or uh, you, you know what happens if you do this. Do this. Yeah. yeah, and he says, I know what happens to everyone else if I don't. And I read that as like, you know, he could have released this whenever, it could have come out, you know, then went to streaming and, you know, it would have been fine, whatever. But he looks at it as like, you know, if we don't push for this to come out in theaters, stay in theaters, show that theatrical exhibition can be a huge thing, it's not going to matter anymore and it's going to die. So we need to do this because movies will die if we don't do this. And I love that. I love that the... As much of this movie is about, you know, the character of Maverick, it's also just about Tom Cruise literally saving movies. <laughs> well, he, he he laid the red carpet out for Avatar Way of Water. I think that, like, you have this kind of one-two punch of these – you have May, Memorial Day weekend, the biggest week, one of the biggest weeks of the year. And it's like, hey – and, and telling Hollywood, too, it's like, have faith in a big movie like this. Word of mouth works. And Avatar comes and proves it. I feel like, you know, proves what was set up by by Maverick. Yeah, it helps that Top Gun Maverick delivers the experience that it does. And kind of like Brandon just said, not to crawl up my own ass, but like seeing the Dark Star sequence in the beginning and in, in Bob Bullock IMAX for the first time, it's a reminder that like movies literally allow you to touch the face of God if they want to. Like, it's just it's so beautiful. And like, he not only delivered like this compact, perfectly told, like kind of completion to, to Pete Mitchell's arc it in that he also just put you in the cockpit of a plane via this movie and was like, hold on. Cause this is going to get crazy. And like, you know, there's a reason that people have seen this movie again, like 10 times in theaters is because it, it, it reminded you of why going to the movies was awesome. Again, like we were all cooped up in our houses for two years and top gun Maverick came back and was like, welcome back. Like, this is what the theatrical experience is supposed to feel like. It doesn't matter if you're in a two screener in Des Moines, Iowa, or if you're in the biggest fucking movie theater in Los Angeles, if you're in the fucking Chinese, you know, like it's just, this is what movies are supposed to feel like when they're projected on the biggest screen possible. And I felt that a lot this year, you know, I mean, Maverick did that, but I, I really was just consistently impressed by a lot of the big movies in the theaters where I was just like, 
I just was like, oh, wait, Hollywood is not fucking dead. Because to your point earlier, Brandon, like I Marvel and Disney scare me. I mean, they really, really do. And I left I said it many times in the pod. But I left the Doctor Strange movie so empty. Like I oh, literally feel like I had, I yeah. feel like I had, I had literally drank air. And that's I had nothing by one of our me. heroes too. Yeah, it's Sam Raimi. But you know, Sam Raimi also made my favorite comic book film, which is Spider-Man Two. Right. You know, and Spider-Man Two actually reminds me a lot of RRR, where it's like it's ridiculous, it's funny, it's cute, but it's also badass. Like it's that full four quadrant kind of experience. And and the, with this one too, it like I said earlier, it, it reminds you the blockbusters can be like this. It. You know, when you see a Marvel movie and there's like the big cameo and then your whole theater screams, although that didn't happen. And when I saw Doctor Strange, there was the big reveal of Mr. Fantastic and my packed theater was dead, <laughs> which was very funny because like those movies give you an applause break. They pause for you to be like, holy shit, it's that character. But no, when no one claps, it's very awkward. But um, yeah, you're basically waiting for Jeb Bush to show up. Yeah, <laughs> please clap. <laughs> but but with this, like you with those with those if those movies, you know, do get the reaction they won it's like for a brief second it's like oh my god it's andrew garfield i'm clapping it's someone i recognize but with this kind of movie with maverick i haven't experienced anything like this in so long where the woman behind me in the entire third act in the trench run she jumped out of her seat whooped and then stayed standing for the entire final act and it was like usually that would annoy me but i was like in that moment i was like you know what no this movie deserves that and she she was stood up behind me the entire time and it was like i you forget that that's what these kind of movies can do and i think we're kind of like hitting on this point a lot but like this this year really did remind me of that with so many different movies yeah from action to horror to drama i mean all genres yeah. can can hit you in different ways yeah so to wrap this up, I'm going to go with my actual number one movie of the whole year, which has also turned out to be one of the most divisive movies <laughs> of the entire year. And that's Damien Chazelle's Babylon. Um, Brandon, you don't live near us, but you would probably know if you did. Uh, and Martin can attest to this is that I got a screener of this sent to me. And I watched it literally every day for five days straight. Oh, wow. Like, like <laughs> I wouldn't stop watching it. I and, was day four. Uh, yeah, you were day three or four. I can't remember. But like I just kept watching it because I couldn't stop thinking about this movie. And on the first viewing, it like ended. And I'm not going to lie. Like I wasn't instantly like, is this my favorite movie of the year? But it did. It just through a charge of like electricity through me to I just couldn't stop thinking about it because me and my girlfriend Carrie watched it and the next day. And that's when I decided that it was my favorite because like by the end I was in tears because of the, the, the final sequence. And like, I, I get, I think why people don't like it, uh, yourself included, Brandon, um, <laughs> is that it is loud and harsh and shrill. It It is anachronistic in a way that you're either going to get on board with or it's going to instantly throw you off. And frankly, it it's a movie about movies and the magic of movies that hates the business of movies and might actually say at the very end, maybe we should stop making these. Um <laughs> So like that's a lot of contradictory things that are going to turn a lot of people off. But for me personally, like 
I just completely lost my fucking mind and I just kept watching it. I kept watching it. And then when I stopped watching it all the way through, I would just watch the first 30 minutes over and over again because I think that first party sequence is so insane and dynamic and show offy in a way that like, I know again, a lot of people have dinged him for this and that they think the movie is more like Chazelle's almost more in love with himself than he is with movies. And it's kind of like a way of being like, look what I can do. Look, ma, no hands style kind of filmmaking. But at the same time, I, you know, I have a hard time knocking anybody for that in this age where like so much stuff looks the same and that the actual art and, and dynamic uh, approach to filmmaking has gone away in favor of like making everything kind of look like television, frankly. And I like that he just threw this big grandiose heaven's gate energy into a movie where he's like, you know what, if this kills my career, fuck it. And <laughs> I, 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 I couldn't be more in love with Babylon. Like I, I, I'm going to watch it again and again and again and again. And I don't care if people don't like it. Yeah. I, um, uh, I, I don't, I, I'll, I'll give my piece, Brandon, then I want to hear uh, your, your rebuttal. <laughs> um, I, I loved it too. Um, I watched it with you and you were kind of watching to see how I was going to, how I was going to go with it because I love old Hollywood and I love old, old Hollywood, like the silent days, mostly the history. I love like the idea of, you know, they didn't even have lights. They were shooting out in the middle of a desert with these sets. Um, I read that wonderful book by, uh, actually local Tom Schatz uh, from uh, UT called genius of the system where Irving Thalberg is like kind of like this, the core it's a wonderful like history. They get into a lot of these early days um, and it's gossipy too, with some of the debaucherous stuff. Um, but I, I'm actually not a big Chazelle fan and like, I really like whiplash and I'm not a big lawyer fan and I liked first uh, man. Okay. Um, but Blasphemy. yeah, I'm an asshole. Um, but I, <laughs> this one really clicked with me because similar to why I like avatar, it's just all the stuff I like. It's what it, even beyond the filmmaking, he showed the stuff that I'm interested in. Um, I love that era of Hollywood, the way that he put it on screen. But to your, your point, Jacob, about it's very new Hollywoody. It's very, you know, heaven's gate kind of go for broke. Um, I, I love that the fact that this movie exists excites me, you know, that this was a year, again, our theme, maybe this episode is films. I didn't think they still made anymore, you know, from big multimillion dollar blockbusters to an, you know, an 80 to a hundred million dollar, basically art piece for parent parent. See people who did Maverick did Babylon. It's the same fucking studio which they're super happy about because babylon's losing all the money where top gun <laughs> made all of it yeah and and so <laughs> at least write this one off it it really clicked with me um and i i think there's a there's a moment um that i really was hit by and that's uh i guess not too far into the film. It's obviously after the party about 45 minutes into an hour and it's when they're all it's the day where they're trying to film this giant battle scene. Um, and uh, while they're waiting for the camera and Manny's off to get the camera, it's complete chaos. You have Spike Jones as the crazy German director um, kind of play like almost like a Spun Sternberg character. It seems like um, Brad Pitt is getting drunk and he 
frankly, Scarlet, you're a cunt. You're a cunt. And he <laughs> gets completely drunk. And they have to like there's this wonderful, like wide, almost like Bergman shot of him trying to go up the the side of the mountain. Um, almost like something out of like Seventh Seal. It's like wide. And he keeps falling over. And they they get the camera, the light's perfect. There's a battle scene behind. And then he just he just stands up like the energy he there are action and he just turns it on, which I've heard about a lot of classic actors. They'd be completely sloshed. The camera would roll and they would just turn it on. That was like Peter O'Toole and Oliver Reed's entire career. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and, and Richard Harris, you know, yeah. um, and, uh, and Richard Burton. But yeah, I, I love that moment. <laughs> they all hung out together. They did. Uh, they, yeah. Who knew? Um, but the moment where he stands up, he kisses her, and that explosion goes off in the background. It's like it's so on the nose, but like I I don't think this film I I disagree with the people who think it's about Chazelle tooting his own horn. I think there are a lot of moments of like like to your point, and he said this as well that it is a love letter to cinema and a fuck you to Hollywood. Um, and I think it's true. And it reminded me a lot of Moneyball in that sense of it's like you can't not be romantic about baseball. But right. He, but the, but the industry, it, the, the actual MLB is fucked. It's soul crushing, you know? So, um, that's my, that's my riff and Brandon, I got to hear what you got to say. <laughs> I, I don't even know if I have anything good to say about why I didn't like it. I just, because I, I said this off mic and, and this is, this is maybe the movie the, that I di- dislike the most that I feel like I should give another chance, mostly because, <laughs> Post COVID, I was having the worst migraines of my life, and on like day two of that, I went to see this, and that first hour, I was having a horrible Ooh. migraine, and I'm sitting there watching it, and I'm just like, oh my god, <laughs> like this is. There's like, also a chance that that movie was pounding your skull. There, so, yeah, who, there's who, who can yeah. say? And and I'm not a big Chazelle guy to begin with, and there's a part of me that I think it's weird, like. I get what he was going for with this movie, but there's a part of me that feels like he's been handed his whole career on a silver platter. And then for him to turn around and be like, Hollywood's ruinous. It's like, I don't know, man, like you have been given everything and I don't know, but, but at the same time, it's maybe he's disgusted with how easily he's gotten it and how, you know, easily this, this industry rewards certain people. So I do think that there's a chance that I'm not giving it the credit it deserves. I felt like a lot of it was up its own ass and that ending was just like, Oh my God. (laughs) I just, but again, there's, there's reads on this movie that I really appreciate. Like everything you guys just said, I really appreciate makes me want to see it again. And there was a read I saw recently with, um, forget who pointed this out, but it, they said this taken with once upon a time in Hollywood where Brad Pitt's playing two, two kind of like, dying versions of a movie star or type of from this industry who's you know being kind of snuffed out it's it's almost like metatextually brad pitt himself is kind of saying goodbye to us because there's a very real chance that you know for lack of a better term we're going to be witnessing his cancellation within the next year or so just because of there's rumblings of stuff that happened between him and jolie and you know there's just stuff that's been slowly coming out and they're supposedly going to trial over it and who knows what's going to happen with that. But, but it almost, and you know, not to feel bad for anyone who may have done anything terrible. I don't feel bad for him, but there is, but he's one of my favorite movie stars and it almost feels like he's with these two last back to back movies. He's kind of saying goodbye in a weird way. And, you know, maybe that's reading too much into it, but 
viewing this movie like that kind of makes me want to see it again, because if there's anything I liked about the movie, it was his performance. And I don't know if, if any of that is actually in the movie, but I kind of like that read on it. I do like that he got to be in both Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and now Babylon. And in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he's essentially doing uh, Hal Needham. Yeah. And then in Babylon, there's a lot of like Federico Fellini uh, yeah. where like he he it almost feels like his eight and a half in a weird way yeah. of like him just kind of navigating it right down to like being introduced, speaking Italian, like <laughs> his character intro is like one of my favorite moments in the entire year, because like, I love that whole fight that he has with Olivia Wilde and then she speeds off and everything and it turns and like Chazelle love him or hate him. There's one well, he's one of the guys who knows how to photograph a movie star and like with the, the capital M, you know, yeah. and the same goes for Margot Robbie, like that whole dance sequence in the beginning. I know that like the rest of the movies are not alike at all. But the, the thing I kept thinking about was my favorite movie from the year before with which was a uh, Teton and that entire oh, yeah. dance sequence in the car show. Um that that she sets up, you know, Margot Robbie basically gets to have the same moment and the way that he films her and the motion of the dancers and everything happening around her. Like it's just absolutely intoxicating. Um, but the, I, again, I get if you don't like this, but like for me personally, rewatching the bear over the last day, I realized that there's a reason that I can even spiritually spiritually link something like the bear to Babylon is that I'm always going to be attracted to things that are about people being in love with the thing that ultimately kills them and like who will just give themselves over to either a career or a passion that they know full well the entire time is poisoning their body and their mind and their souls, but just, are so invested in it that they can't help but exist any other way. And like, that's just, that's what I'm attracted to. It's not frankly part of my own life in, in real life with what I do professionally. It's just like, I know the things that I engage in are bad for me, but I love doing them so much that it's like, this is ultimately going to be my demise, but maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. See, it's frustrating because I wish that like because what you and Martin have said about the movie is just so like beautiful. And I wish I had anything better to say about why I didn't like it other than it didn't connect with me. And it, it but I don't know, I guess some movies are like that. But I really do feel like after everything you both said that I, I wish I had a better reason for it. Well, here's hoping that this at least lets you give it another shot. Um, I can't wait to watch stars at noon. I'll be uh, watching myself that. this week. <laughs> I'm going to be watching that very soon. I, honestly, I might go home and just watch top gun Maverick again, though, if I'm going to be like, totally <laughs> and hey, you real. guys, you guys might both hate stars at noon. So, I mean, there's a very real chance of that. So we'll I see. doubt it. I doubt I would hate that movie. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I've ever hated a Claire Denis yeah. movie. I don't think there's one I even dislike. It was shocking to see people hate this one because, like, again, the the festival it played at seemed like the festival where people might appreciate it, but like the the reception to it was like I, I was like Jesus. And then when I saw it, I was like, oh, you guys just didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brandon Martin, 
This has been great. 2022, amazing year for movies, but we got to wrap it up. Hope everybody enjoyed it as much as we did. And we'll see you now for a whole new year of Secret Handshake in 2023. Keep listening.